Sean, thank you very much for joining us today. It's great to have you here. It's nice to be here. Thanks for doing this, Jamie. So, Sean, these are um, tricky times for investors, interesting times. So many macro headwinds uh, for equity investors. Um, in the fixed income world, we've got uh, rates uh, giving us a real yield for the first time. It wasn't that long ago. The 60-40 portfolio had its worst performance ever. Um, I just wondered if we could start by you giving us a bit of a, an impression about how you see markets today, how people should be thinking about investing in portfolio construction. Yeah, well, it's definitely a challenging time. I mean, you know, the markets today in the U.S. in particular are being driven by essentially 10 names. And so if you don't own those 10 names in a significant way, you're going to underperform whatever benchmark you might be trying to track. And the amount of the disconnect between the relative return of, say, the market cap weighted indexes to the index to the equal weighted indexes today is at like, you know, historic levels, mm. you know, 1999, 2020 levels. And so it'd be interesting to see whether that market leadership can continue going forward. And those 10 names will just drag everybody up or whether there'll be some form of re re reversal. I mean, generally speaking, I think, you know, the market's still trading at a bit of a premium, you know, somewhere mm. like 20 times <clears throat> earnings. And you would want in an environment where you're overpaying a little bit for stocks, you'd want it to feel like an environment that you would feel good about overpaying for. But there's so many, as you said, macro headwinds today. You've got, you know, you've got interest rates, the Fed, you've got the con concern about a recession, you've got the commercial real estate looming after we've just gone through this banking crisis. And so mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to see how things shake out. So I'm a little bit cautious, if you will, on the overall market today. Um, just because of valuations and concentration. Um, you bring up concentration there, which is an interesting point. I'm not so much of an indices expert, but are these big names getting too big now? Are these indices really just becoming momentum plays? Do we need to see more products out there where market cap as an issue is treated um, with a little more... Um, uh, it's just treated differently because otherwise it just becomes so self-fulfilling. Yeah, well, I guess that's one of the potential flaws of cap weighting is that you wind up crowding <coughs> out other names because of market cap. Mm. And these broader indexes are sort of that used to be considered blends between value and growth have sort of been moving or gravitating more closely to growth as opposed to what they were originally designed, which is sort of a broad look at the overall market. And so... Um, you know, we at, at Pacer, um, for some of the strategies that we run, we don't use market cap. We use the free cash flow yield a company generates, for example, on our value series. Mm. And that tends to give some of these smaller companies, in terms of market cap, a bigger place at the table to create returns for investors. Um, look, I want to come on to the products you have at Pacer Financial uh, in a second. But if we could talk more generally about ETFs, um, their rise to stardom, seem to continue to grow. Um, is there any chance, do you, see, do you see that continuing? Is there any chance of it slowing? Um, did ETFs become so popular because uh, passive investing became so popular, correlations became tight? How do you see the outlook for ETFs now? I'm still very bullish on the overall outlook for e ETFs. I think, you know, interesting enough, ETFs have the same issue that the broad market has, if you want to know the truth. I mean, 85% of the assets are in the hands of three big mega ETF issuers, iShares, BlackRock, and Vanguard. Mm. Uh, so that leaves the rest of us sort of fighting over that 15%. And I think it would be a healthier environment if if that weren't the case. If, you know, the big mm. guys are always going to be big, but if there was a little bit more competition, if you will, you know, down the stack of ETF issuers. And I think ETFs are going to continue to grow. Uh, the last of the uh, active folks finally threw in the towel. That would be American funds. They held out as long as they could. Mm -hmm. uh, but now they've entered the fray. And so we'll, we will, I think, from a wrapper perspective, I think that's what makes the ETF 
more attractive than a traditional 40 act fund. Mm -hmm. The ability to control capital gains distributions to an extent because of the custom in kind creation redemption process is probably more than anything what's going to lead this next wave of ETF growth. Um, so let's talk about that. How do the smaller, let's say, niche players like Pesa Financial, how do they compete with, with the big three? How do, how do competitors try and catch up with the big three? Well, you can't go toe-to-toe -to -toe with them on stuff that's cheap, if you will, right? So we've just... Because do they just have too much scale that they cost? They just cost, do. It's yeah. just impossible to compete with, uh, you know, an iShares who can, you know, issue product at five basis points and mm -hmm. make money at it, you know. Or even for, less. Or less, yeah. Mm -hmm. So we try to find um, places that we can build product that are either innovative, disruptive, or unique, where we think there's a problem that an investor's facing, and we might have a unique solution to that. And then that there's a... A, a decent or a sizable enough addressable market so that if you're successful in building that kind of a product that you can get to scale. And so we focus on the end user of the product at the end of the day, the, the client or the investor or the FA in most cases as well, mm. and try to solve problems for them or build things that they might find useful in portfolio construction. But we also pay attention to size and scale like, mm. you know, I don't want to have you know the best twenty million dollar ETF in the history of mankind. It's of no use to anybody really. So there has to be above and beyond a need for the investor or a tool that the FA can use in their client's portfolio. There has to be the ability to get it to a billion or two billion or three billion or four billion or ten billion dollars in mm -hmm. AUM because that will ultimately sustain our organization as a smaller issuer over time. Is we we have to be able to get to a certain level of scale to be able to continue to go forward. We've already achieved that at Pacer. Yeah. Um, it took us a long time. The other thing that's sort of, I think, a differentiator is distribution. So we take a very different You're just view. through FAs, are you? Yeah, we just focus on the FA for now, but we have a very, very big sales force relative to the size of our assets. We have almost 80 external wholesalers in the field, and we've got 40 or so internals. And so we focus on that distribution as a way to gather assets. It's very expensive to start that way, but if you're good very at it- Very sticky though, I imagine. If you're good at it, it provides that ramp to AUM growth because you know that those people are out there every day working with FAs and they're gonna accumulate some level of sales. And so that's our approach and that's what makes us different that I think holds some of the other smaller ETF issuers back because it is very expensive. Um, well, let's talk a bit about your product offering. Um, I know you've got this very popular cows ETF that's uh, kind of like the, um, the the star the star of the field. Can you talk a bit about how that product came about? How you deal? How you you know how you come up with these uh, different kind of products? Yeah, so we were thinking about trying to figure out where we would uh, go in, in say traditional value investing because value investing although maybe in the short term now is slightly underperforming growth, it's a very important part of an overall portfolio. It needs to be there all the time, just like growth needs to be there all the time. We have these debates, should I be in growth or value? You need both, right? So when we're thinking about value, when you think about how the market defines value, it's been really primarily based on price to book or low price to book. And so the composition of the stock market today is, is far different than it was 40 years ago. 40 years mm -hmm. ago is almost... 90% tangible asset based. In other words, the value of a company was based on things you could see, touch, feel, pick up, count, put a price tag on. Today, it's flipped the other way. So it's 90% so intangible. intangible. Mm. So if you're going to use book, it's very difficult to analyze what's cheap. And so we work with- Because the it's difficult to know what real book value is. Well, what is Google's book value? Is it yeah. because they own a bunch of servers or have a data center? Or is it because they refined, perfected, and monetized search? That's their real value. It's an intangible asset. 
So we worked with some folks on, you know, we, we posed the question, what would you use if you didn't use price to book? And the answer resoundingly came back, free cash flow and free cash flow yield. So free cash flow yield is just, what do I have to pay in total to buy a dollar's worth of free cash flow? And mm -hmm. so you can express that as a percentage or a yield. And so we took on this idea of let's use free cash flow yield as a way to screen broad indexes like the Russell 1000, for example, which is what Cows uses. We just pull 100 stocks out every quarter that have the highest free cash flow yield. And there's a you know decent amount of turnover because stocks will go up and the free cash flow yield will go down or the free cash flow will change to the negative. And that approach seems to be uh, from a traditional value approach, a more, I would say, relevant, I don't say better, because I don't think my compliance people will let me say better, but I would say <laughs> relevant yeah. to what's going on today. And it also, free cash flow yield also is like a divining rod, if you will. It points you to the parts of the economy as the economy goes through these cycles where all of the free cash flow is being generated. So, mm. you know, four years ago, we were overweight tech in the consumer. Today, we're underweight tech in the consumer and we're overweight energy materials and healthcare. And so that rebalance on a quarterly basis keeps the portfolio wedded to what's really going on. And candidly, the success of cows, and it's just not cow Z, it's a whole family of, of cows. You've mm. got small cap, calf, and international and, I, and, <laughs> and global. And we have a fund of funds, which we call herd. So, <laughs> Very good. Um, so we had a lot of fun with the tickers. Um, but that approach to investing has worked sort of exactly like we we thought. And we worked with FTSE <clears throat> Russell initially on trying to test this out, and they were very, very helpful. Um, and so we've had a lot of success with it. And so we'll hopefully we'll continue to, to see, you know, good returns and good asset growth in the value space. And then we've just now done the same thing on the growth side, by the way. Mm. So if growth, you don't use free cash flow yield. You know, growth indexes typically use sales growth as a big metric. But sales growth doesn't produce excess return over time. It actually destroys return, believe it or not. Mm. What produces excess return over time is free cash flow margin. So it's the free cash flow company generates divided by its sales. And so if you look at you know Cow-G, which is our growth version of the Cow series, the 100 stocks we own have a 30% plus on average free cash flow margin. That means for every dollar's worth of sales, they're kicking out 30 cents worth of profits. Um, everything you say makes so much sense. It actually sounds like a very Warren Buffett approach to things. It's like, I will pay a dollar into a company that's going to give me more than a dollar back and, and, and proves it. But so much of today's market is just speculation on future earnings. It's show me the revenue and I'll give you my money. Um, it just seems like a very difficult um, in market to invest. It's just simply on that. I mean, we're all looking at NVIDIA sales and seeing this company just blow the lights out. How do we, do you, do you think there's going to be a point where investing just has to check itself and say, listen, we are giving too, we're speculating too much on where we put our money. We need to start investing on, on companies that are proven to give us profit. I actually think the opposite is true. I actually think there's a place for that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're never going to get the boom and bust cycle out of the stock market because it's the, the participants are human beings. So our humanity is what's going to continue to drive the stock market to insane levels like mm -hmm. we saw in the dot-com era and some might argue today, you know, with all these big tech names and NVIDIA, which I own, by the way. I think, you know, I think there's a place for that in a portfolio. Mm -hmm. But in a portfolio, it's not one thing, right? It's a mixture of things that you put in that portfolio so that when one's sort of going haywire, you know, the other part of the portfolio, you can't look at it and say, well, how come you're not doing this, right? Mm -hmm. It's not supposed to do that. But like if you look at the last two years, 
you know, having an overweight to value or having value period in your portfolio was a savior and particularly with, with what we do. So I, I don't think you want to get that out because some a certain amount of innovation comes from that, mm -hmm. even though maybe not all of those companies will survive. But you have to balance things out. Like when I look at those individual stocks that I own personally, I own uh, NVIDIA and Amazon and Google and Apple, but I put them on this side of my ledger, right? Right. But I also own Valero and I own Marathon Petroleum and some other names that are, you know, not trading at these loft, and I put them on that side of my ledger. And I think the whole thing together works. People get hurt from time to time, you know, when we get too euphoric and then everybody starts to chase, eventually mm. you'll have that big downdraft, which will hurt people. But it's all part of the ecosystem that I think in general works pretty well. Uh, so if I ask, this side of your ledger, you're still pretty bullish on it or are you kind of paring back? No, I, I'm not one of those, like I just, you know, if I, 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 I'm I a little just, worried. You just allocate I'm, to that. Yeah, <clears throat> I'm, yeah, I'm a little worried about valuations, to be honest with you. I'm always worried about valuations. I'm sort of an old fashioned guy. I think, you know, the stock market should work on fundamentals, mm -hmm. right? Like you should be able to figure out, like, do I make money and how much money do I make for how much capital I'm committing to the stock? Um, so I'm a, I'm a sort of a traditionalist in that sense. Um, but I, so, and so I look at the overall market and like I said, what we began with our discussion today is like, if you're going to go through a cycle where you're going to overpay a little bit for stocks, you want to feel good about the environment, right? That's mm -hmm. when you should be thinking like that. And it doesn't feel like that right now. I think there's too many potential negatives that could come mm. to keep the stock market at a level that it is right now. So I'm a little cautious. Um, let's talk um, credit if we could for a little bit. Um, Finally, we're getting uh, rates that give us a, a, a real yield. Uh, what kind of products do you have in the fixed income side of things? And is that something you're looking to, to, to roll out more of? Yeah, so we're a little light on fixed income. I think it's great. I mean, the, the biggest, the, the, the person who got hurt the most here in the United States the last decade is the retiree because we had rates at zero and mm -hmm. you know they need fixed income in their portfolio to live. Um, it's nice to see rates are back up and I think that helps the American retiree a little bit. So. Um, it's good to see, and it's, I think it's a healthy thing. We, we have essentially two ETFs that focus on fixed income. We have others that focus on income, but not in fixed income. We have mm. a, like a four times dividend product on the S&P 500, for example. It's got a very attractive yield. But in fixed income, we have a, a floating rate fund, which is you know basically 90-day paper that rolls over. So the more rates go up, the better the yield is without that duration risk. And we have a strategy that rotates from high yield to treasuries based on a, a signal that we've built that sort of we call a risk ratio. Mm -hmm. I think we need more fixed income. Um, when you look at our the competitive landscape, and you know, <clears> I gotta pay attention to the, that kind of stuff. Like when you look at what people have sold that we're not selling, the biggest, most glaring hole in our lineup is probably fixed income. Um, Sean, as you look out next six to 12 months, we've talked about quite a few of the macro headwinds. We've uh, just had the debt ceiling raised. We have an election next year. Equity valuations seem very full. Um, tensions with between the US and, and China in terms of trade. Uh, how do you see um, the sort of markets playing out over the next six to 12 months? I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, I think um, there's people that are afraid of a recession. Um, you know, there, there's, there's two narratives that have proven to be not true for the last 12 months. All right. That we're going to have a recession. Well, the first one is that the Fed's going to stop raising rates. They're not. right. They're going to keep raising rates until they get inflation under control. Mm. And that the second is that, 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 that those, the speed at which they've raised rates is going to destroy the economy. 
and that hasn't happened yet either. Now it could, right? You could start to see some of this employment numbers roll over. So, I think, sorry to interrupt, but why do you think that is actually? Because we don't want to believe that the Fed's going to do what they want to do because we want the party back. So it's a credibility thing? Uh, just, you know, I don't know. It's not Well, the Fed doesn't have a lot of real credibility if you look at their track record. It they tend seems to, to be less and less. They, they, they tend to be <laughs> like a bull in a china shop. They break a lot of stuff when they implement policy sometimes and they're not, you know, their track record on that side is not very good. But I think, and, and by the way, they were late to the party, right? I mean, you know, the inflation was 8% before they actually said, okay, maybe this is a real problem. So, um, but those two narratives have been true, you know, this entire time. If, if the economy stays strong, and it so far looks like that, and employment, you know, we don't have, you know, 6 7% unemployment, then I think it is possible that we could see a, you know, not a recession or a very, very mild recession. Mm. Um, what will be interesting to watch, though, is what the interest rate changes and what inflation is doing to companies' bottom lines, mm. right? So uh, we haven't seen the full effect of that because the Fed raised so fast. We don't have enough time to see what the impact of that was. And so the, the biggest potential risk perhaps might not be recession, might not be that unemployment will go up. It might be that margins will come down because mm. the companies across the, the, you know, the fruited plain, if you will, haven't fully digested that. Now, some are starting to get ahead of it a little bit by announcing some layoffs. So that might fuel the unemployment thing or trying to cut costs in other ways. And, but that'll be the interesting thing is, it, is do we see a robust uh, earnings growth or do we have uh, non-normal recession, but an earnings recession as a, as a result of what's going on here. Um, Sean, you've given us so much to think about. This has been a great conversation. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much.